Welcome to Understanding Christianity, a podcast hosted by Sean Cole. I'm your host. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. On today's podcast, I want to deal with Romans chapter 9, and I'm coming a little late to the party, but there's been a lot of debates over the past few months uh, discussing Romans chapter 9, especially between uh, Dr. James White and Leighton Flowers. And I'm not going to make a comment on who actually won the debate, but I've, in this podcast, want to interact with those two gentlemen, but I also want to basically give my own exegesis or own explanation or own exposition of Romans chapter 9. And let me just tell you a little bit about why I want to speak into this, because I think it's an important topic. Number one, um, I had James White as a professor of apologetics at the Rocky Mountain campus of Golden Gate um, here in Denver. And so I've been directly under his teaching. I have followed the Dividing Line program for years. Um, It was under James White's um, leadership and scholarship and his book, The Potter's Freedom, that basically led me or helped lead me to understand the doctrines of grace. And so I highly um, esteem Dr. James White. I think he's a brilliant scholar. I think he is a profound exegete. I would never want to do what Leighton Flowers did and jump into the deep end of the pool and debate him. Um, but usually I'm on the same side of the argument as Dr. White. And so um, I think Dr. White's analysis and conclusions of Romans chapter 9 will be very close to what I have come to understand as well. Now let me just mention um, Leighton Flowers. As many of you know, I was on his podcast Soteriology 101 a few weeks ago where we engaged in a very friendly and cordial discussion about our differences and and I actually contacted Leighton before we actually before I actually decided to record this podcast to have him help me understand his view of Romans 9 because I think that was one of the big issues in the debate was a little bit of a misunderstanding on both sides and so really um, I, I did engage Leighton Flowers and told him I'd be doing this podcast And again, it was very cordial and we had a good conversation. One of the things that was brought out in the debate was the exegetical method used. And there was uh, basically um, differences of opinion on how one goes about exegeting the text. Now let me just, I'm using a word exegeting, and maybe you're listening to this and you're not quite sure what that word is, and you may hear it on podcasts or read it in blogs or on Facebook or whatever. Exegete basically means to draw out to draw out of the text what is there. Eisegesis, on the other hand, is to impose your own opinion or your own philosophy outside or, or into the text as opposed to taking what's there in the text and discovering its meaning. And so I have heard differences of opinion on the exegetical method used in the debate between Dr. White and Leighton Flowers. So one podcast basically uh, basically charged Dr. White that all he did was he just did a running commentary of Romans 9 and then after each verse he inserted his own opinion. I think that's an unfair analysis of what Dr. White did. You have to remember 
their debate, they had 20 minutes to basically give their exegesis of Romans chapter 9, which is a long passage of scripture. And 20 minutes is a short amount of time. And so what Dr. White was doing was, in the time allotted in that 20 minutes, which is not a lot, he was trying to get his entire um, exegesis of that passage into that time frame. Now, if I were to preach Romans chapter 9 in my local church, at Emmanuel Baptist Church, I would probably take two or three weeks to unpack all of its implications and all of its truths to really faithfully deal with it. So the nature of the debate lent itself to doing things pretty quickly. Also, um, Dr. White seemed to have some some problems with Leighton Flowers' exegetical method. And so one thing I will say about this is that um, Dr. Uh, I'm sorry, Leighton Flowers uh, is a scholar. I mean, he's written a book on Romans chapter 9, so he hasn't come to this half-heartedly, haphazardly. He's taken time to study the issues, to study the text, and and obviously he's written a book on Kindle. And so um, I don't fault Leighton Flowers' exegetical method. It may be different than Dr. White's, and and they obviously came up with different conclusions, but I think both men are obviously Bible-believing Christians who believe in inerrancy and have come to um, their understanding of the text through the method that they believe most faithfully um, represents a, a positive exegetical exegetical method. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to speak into this issue uh, just personally and tell you before we even go into Romans chapter 9, what is my exegetical method? Because if you're listening to this and you're a pastor or you're a seminary student or you're a a Bible teacher, you may get excited when we talk about exegesis or exegetical. What is is my exegetical method in going about understanding the scriptures? But maybe you're just a layperson or a church member and you're listening to this podcast and you have no clue or you don't really even care about exegesis. I would say this, you do need to care. And here's, here's why. Because if you sit under preaching and teaching, especially, I hopefully, expository preaching, you need to not only understand why your pastor or your teacher has come to those conclusions, but how. How he's come to those conclusions. And so it's important for me to share with you on this podcast my exegetical method so that you understand where I'm coming from. So I'm going to lay my cards on the table and tell you that I am heavily influenced by a scholar named Walt Kaiser. Walt Kaiser is an Old Testament scholar, but he's written a seminal book back in the early 80s called Toward an Exegetical Theology. Um, I highly recommend this book. I think all seminary students and pastors need to read it. You may not agree with everything that's in there, but I think he sets forth a very positive, solid um, presentation uh, of the historical grammatical approach to exegesis. I also think another good work is by Sidney Gradonis. Sidney Gradonis has written The Modern Preacher in the Ancient Text, and he deals more with genre studies, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. And I think he's done a great job as well. And then Dr. Don Carson, D.A. Carson's book, Exegetical Fallacies, is another good resource. And so I really think all pastors, all seminary students, those of you that are serious about studying the Bible, need to have these as resources. Whether you agree with everything in them, I think they're good resources to go to. So let me just tell you my method. And a lot of this comes from Walt Kaiser. uh, But here's basically the approach that I take when understanding a passage of Scripture. And the first thing that I do is I look at the uh, contextual, analysis. Um, A lot of times you can just what's called atomatize or or fragment a text and and look at a single text in isolation. 
And that's not a good thing to do. You want to look and first and see how that text, how its sentences, its phrases, the paragraph of that section, the overall context, how that fits into the paragraphs before and after it, how it fits into that chapter, how it fits into that book, how it fits into the entire canon of Scripture. And so one of the things that you're doing here is you first want to determine what the author's intent is. And so let me just talk a little bit about authorial intent. You know, in our culture today, it's been heavily influenced by what we would call the reader response movement. Uh, reader response basically means, and maybe you've been in a Bible study before where everybody goes around the circle, and, and hopefully your Bible study leader never does this. Hopefully they don't do this, but you go around the circle, and, and, and basically, what does this text mean to me? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? I think it means this. That's reader response. Basically, the authority of the text is coming from you as the reader. You're the one determining the meaning. And so it could be different for you. It could be different for a person over here. Uh, the, the meaning's different depending on what you bring to it. That is erroneous. That's liberal. That's the reader response. Uh, that, that's an approach that hopefully you're not sitting under. The other approach is what's called authorial intent. What's the original intent of the author? I believe that the Holy Spirit superintended the writing of the scriptures by moving in the hearts and minds supernaturally of the scripture writers to write down exactly what God wanted them to say, down to the very syntax, down to the very phraseology, down to the tense, everything, exactly how God wanted it written. And so what we need to determine is what is the author's intent? What did the author mean? What's the purpose? What's his thesis? What's his argument? And oftentimes, an author will set forth his thesis, his purpose. And you will see that as you study deeply the scriptures. So you look at the big picture. You look um, contextually. But then secondly, you do a syntactical analysis. And, and usually this comes through the way I do it, through what's called grammatical historical exegesis. And so when we look at grammatical and historical, I say one of the first things that you need to do is understand the literary genre of the actual passage of Scripture that you're dealing with. What's the literary genre? Now, genre is another word that maybe you're not familiar with. And so let me give you an illustration of, of how I usually describe genre. Back in the old days, in the 80s, when I was a teenager growing up, you went to Blockbuster Video. And you would go down different shelves or different aisles depending on what type of movie you wanted to look for. Nowadays, we have Netflix. And so if you go on Netflix, how can you search for movies? Well, you can search by action-adventure. You can search by romantic comedy. You can search by documentary, by um, historical uh, war movies, horror, thriller, crime, suspense. Those are genres. And so when we come to a literary genre, God in his providence has, has arranged the scriptures to where that there's different genres of scripture. So for example, um, is it Hebrew narrative? Genesis is Hebrew narrative. It tells a narrative. It tells um, a, a story, a literal historical story of, of creation and of Abraham. And so you read historical narrative, Hebrew narrative, different than you would read law passages like that you'd find in Deuteronomy. Or apocalyptic passages that you would read in Revelation or in Daniel. Or um, the Gospels, those are narratives. Uh, you would read that differently than, say, a law or a prophetic passage in Isaiah. Or a wisdom literature like the Psalms or the Proverbs. And so we come to Romans and it's an epistle. 
an epistle. And there are rules and conventions for, for how letters were written in the ancient world. And so one of the big questions you've got to ask when you're dealing with an epistle is, what's the occasion of the letter? Meaning, why did Paul, or whoever the, the writer is, but let's say for Romans, why did Paul write Romans? What's the occasion? What's the prompting? What's the reason why he's writing this? And I'm going to discuss that in just a few moments. So you, you have to really discover the literary genre and determine how you go about understanding that text within its literary genre. Then you narrow it down to what I would call the pericope or the paragraph. Because usually most authors of scripture will have a definite unit of thought. Now in our modern translations, they sometimes help you by putting things into paragraphs. Again, the original autographs were not, um, did not have chapter and verse, and sometimes there were no paragraph indentations, and so your modern translations like the ESV, the New King James, the New American Standard Bible, they've been helpful by putting in paragraphs to kind of divide up the thought. And sometimes those are not, um, you know, as I've done exegesis, I would have broken it up a little differently, but usually, normally, you go through and you determine what is the unit of thought. It could be a whole chapter, it could be a paragraph, it, and usually it's tied together by a main point or a thesis or one big idea. Then you go to what's called verbal analysis. Verbal analysis begins to focus on the particular use of words, um, word studies. Now we need to be real careful with word studies because I've seen this abused a lot, especially from televangelists and from preachers on TV. Uh, there's one preacher that um, he's got a program called Manifest. He's a prophecy teacher. You can see him on TBN or Daystar, and, and he's always doing word studies, and he talks about how I've got this nugget, and I've done years and years of word studies, and he comes up with these really fanciful interpretations because he, he did a word study, and oftentimes he looks at the Strong's Concordance, or he even looks at Webster's Dictionary to, to get a word study. Yes, we need to study the words, but we need to understand that a word in and of itself does not give the full meaning of the text. You have to look at the entire context of how that word is used with the material that's around it. And for example, even in the Gospel of John, for example, John uses the word cosmos or world in multiple different ways. So if you were just to do a Strong's Concordance study on the word world, you would find that there are just different uses of, of even within the same gospel of how John uses it. So you need to be real careful when you do word studies that you look contextually at how that word is used in the context of the words around it. How does that author use it? So context determines the meaning of that word. And so you look, again, at verb tenses. You look at participles. You look at clauses. You, you get into the original languages and you determine the flow of thought, the argumentation. And then I think it's important to do a theological analysis. And so when you come to the, the truths that you are discovering in the passage of Scripture, you need to begin to ask the question, okay, what theological truth am I finding in this passage of Scripture that's corroborated by the full testimony of Scripture? In other words, the Protestant reformers called this the analogy of faith, or you might say Scripture interprets Scripture. And so um, the, the, the common name is cross-referencing. How do you see the theological truths in that particular passage corroborated, paralleled, confirmed, established throughout the totality of Scripture to build 
a theology. So it's not just you're building a theology out of a verse in isolation. For example, in Mark's ending, uh, the, the spurious ending of Mark, it talks about um, handling poisonous snakes. Um, do you build an entire theology around snake handling out of one verse that mentions it and it's not corroborated in the rest of the scriptures? And so when you come to the study of particular passages of scripture, you need to take those things into consideration. And so when you come to Romans chapter 9, I don't think Romans chapter 9 is that difficult to understand. I think the difficulty comes in people not wanting to accept what Paul is actually teaching. And so what I want to argue from the very beginning is that Paul is not teaching anything new in Romans 9 that has not already been established in Exodus, has not already been established in Isaiah, and has not already been established back in Genesis. He's going to bring those passages of Scripture to bear in line with Romans 9. So we come to Romans 9 looking at the full canonical context. And what I mean by canonical is, how does Romans 9 fit into the entire storyline of the Bible? Because there's thousands of years of history leading up to Romans 9, and Paul's even going to reference that history, and he's going to directly quote Old Testament. And so we have to understand what's been going on in redemptive history up to Romans chapter 9. We also need to understand the occasion for why Romans chapter 9 was written. Now, there's many different reasons why Romans chapter 9, or the book of Romans, was written. Let me give you three reasons that I believe it was written. Number one, I think ultimately it's Paul's doctrinal tr- treatise. I think it's to lay forth his theology of salvation. It's masterfully written. It's written almost like a legal treatise where he is a lawyer and he's laying forth his case and he's anticipating objections and he's laying forth his doctrinal treatise of what the, of what the, the Holy Spirit inspired him to teach about salvation. I also think, number two, it's a missionary manifesto. If you read the, the book of Romans, Paul wants to go to Spain. He wants to go to an unreached people group in Spain to present the gospel. And he did not plant the church in Rome, but he's writing, quote unquote, a missionary letter to the Roman church so that when he stops off on his way to Spain, he would be refreshed there. And so he's giving kind of his missionary manifesto, his missionary desire to go to unreached peoples. But I think the other occasion for the writing of Romans is Jew and Gentile relationships. Historically, let me tell you what was happening. Paul did not plant the church in Rome. So then how was the church planted, you may ask? Well, most scholars believe that at Pentecost, when pilgrims from all over the world came together in Jerusalem at Pentecost and Peter preached that powerful sermon and and they were saved, that many of those pilgrims went back to their hometown. And so many scholars believe that there are some from Rome who got saved at Pentecost, went back and planted the church. They also believe that Priscilla and Aquila also had a role in possibly helping plant that church. But Paul didn't plant the church. But here's the issue. In the city of Rome, which was a large city, a metropolitan city, there was a mixture of Jew and Gentile together in the life of the church. But then around A.D. 49, the Roman emperor made an edict, basically kicking out all the Jews out of Rome, expelling them, exporting them, basically saying, you're not welcome here. And so by law, the Jews had to leave Rome. And so where did you go? Well, you probably, maybe you went to Corinth, maybe you went to Ephesus, another big city where you could find work. And so now you've got a church that's entirely Gentile. And so 
Over years, and, and it's a five-year period here, because five years later, the new Roman Empire is gonna, Roman Emperor is going to allow the Jews to come back. And so after five years, the Jews come back. And so what's happened in that five years? You've got a culture established. You've got maybe new leadership. You've got a Gentile identity. And now the Jews are coming back to the church where they once were a part of. And now they're trying to navigate how do they fit. And so Paul could be addressing this issue of how do Jews and Gentiles get along? And so what he does from the very beginning as he states his thesis in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe for the Jew first and for the Gentile. And so chapter 1 establishes universal guilt before God and that everybody is under God's wrath due to sin. Chapter 2, Paul says, Jews, just in case you thought you were off the hook and I was talking about the Gentiles, let me tell you, that you too are under God's condemnation. You too have some issues you've got to deal with. And what Paul does is he's going to address something in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, that helps set the stage for Romans chapter 9. So in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul is establishing early in his letter that there is um, this issue that just because you're an ethnic Jew, just because you may have been outwardly circumcised, doesn't mean you're saved. It doesn't mean that you have salvation. It doesn't mean that you've actually been inwardly circumcised. Now, what's this inward circumcision? It goes back to the imagery in Ezekiel, where God promises a future day where under His sovereignty, to the power of His Holy Spirit, He would replace a heart of stone with a heart of flesh and bring about regeneration. And so Paul's making the argument from early in the letter that just, hey, just because you're an ethnic Jew doesn't mean that you're actually saved. It doesn't mean that you're part of God's family. It doesn't mean that you have the Holy Spirit. You've got to be regenerated. You've got to be circumcised spiritually. And then in chapter 3, Paul basically says, hey, all Jews and, and Gentiles are all under condemnation. Uh, 3.9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So he, he brings about the universality of sin. And then masterfully at the end of chapter 3, he presents the gospel and all of its beauty. That Christ Jesus was set forth as a propitiation to bear God's wrath against sin and that we can be redeemed by faith. And then he moves into chapter 4 and gives an example of Abraham and how Abraham was saved by faith that was credited to him, not by any works. And then in chapter 5, Paul begins to unpack the doctrine of justification by faith, this whole truth that God can declare us legally not guilty on account of the righteousness of Christ being imputed or credited to us through faith. And then at the end of chapter 5, he establishes the two Adams. He, he says, how did sin come into the world? How did guilt and condemnation come into the world? Why are we all born guilty? Well, it's because of Adam and what Adam has brought into the world. And Jesus is the better Adam. He's the second Adam who's brought redemption. And then there's an argument, again, like a good legal treatise. He anticipates an objection. Someone may say after the first five chapters, this is awesome, Paul. I was a terrible, horrible sinner under God's wrath, but now I've been justified freely by grace. Now that I'm forgiven, I can go out and live however I want. I can do whatever I want. God loves forgiving. I love sinning. It's a great relationship. 
And Paul says, absolutely not. In chapter 6, how are we who have been freed from sin continue to live in sin? And he begins to build that argument. Chapter 7, he begins to go on and talk about the struggle with sin and talk about the progressive sanctification that believers undergo as servants of Christ. And then in chapter 8, he addresses this whole idea of of, a future consummation of all things where God is going to redeem us and and we're going to experience ultimate glorification and even the entire created order is going to be renewed. And then he gives the wonderful golden chain of redemption that deals with individual salvation. It deals with individual foreknowing, individual predestination, individual calling, individual justifying, individual glorification. And then he ends chapter 8 with this glorious teaching of who can separate us from the love of Christ. And he begins to list all these things that could possibly separate us. And he says, absolutely not. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's the context that builds up to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is not in a vacuum. It's part of a long argument, part of a long presentation of truth that Paul has been establishing for eight chapters. But so when we get into Romans chapter 9, you really have to begin to ask, what is Paul addressing? What's Paul's burden? What question? What issue? What's his thesis? What's the problem? What is Paul? What's the purpose of Romans chapter 9? (coughs) excuse me so what i want to do is i want to read romans chapter 9 i'm not going to read the entire chapter but i'm going to read most of the chapter and we're going to go back and look at this piecemeal so let's read romans chapter 9 together and hear the word of the lord paul writes i am speaking the truth in christ i'm not lying my conscience bears witness in my in the holy spirit that i have great sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What issue is Paul ultimately addressing? Well, Paul begins by expressing grief. He's sorrowful. He, he's, he's cut to the heart. And why? Why is Paul sorrowful? Well, he's sorrowful because his own kinsmen, ethnic Jews, are being accursed and cut off from Christ. In other words, there are individual ethnic Jews who are not trusting in Christ for salvation. They're not believing in Jesus. And as a result, they are being condemned to hell. And this bothers Paul. This concerns Paul. He's, he's upset. He's grieved in his heart through this. It's, it's caused him heartbreak and sorrow. And so this is the, the uh, emotion of Paul, the missionary zeal of Paul, the desire of Paul to, to see his kinsmen, his fellow Israelites saved. And so really the issue that Paul is going to address here is this. For eight chapters, he's been expounding upon human guilt and God's amazing grace and salvation. And, and there's Jewish people in his audience, Jewish people in the church, who are probably thinking to themselves, that's wonderful, Paul. But you, do you know our history? Do you know the promises that God has made to us as a people? Do you know who we are? We're God's chosen people. So why then are there ethnic Jews who are not coming to faith in the Messiah? It looks as if Paul... God's word has failed. It looks like God's justice is on the line. It looks like God's covenant promises are on the line. God, Paul, it looks like God has somehow failed because there's Jews, ethnic Jews that we're seeing all around us who are cut off and accursed from Christ and not trusting him for salvation. So God's word must have failed. That's what the issue is in Romans 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And what Paul begins to do is he says, listen, there are promises that God made to Israel, to ethnic Israel. As a matter of fact, there's seven of them that he lists there in verses four and five. He says, they are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption. Now, this is not a, a soteriological issue of salvific adoption. What Paul is arguing here is that the Israelites were God's chosen son. If you go back to the Old Testament, oftentimes God was referred to as the father, Israel as his firstborn son. And so God had chosen the nation to be his, his son. He talks about the glory that deals with the, the glory cloud of God's Shekinah glory that the Israelites experienced in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, in, in the temple, all that experience of the manifest presence of God. Um, they experienced the covenant and the law, the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the law given from Mount Sinai. 
the worship, talking about the temple worship, that, that they had the privilege of Solomon building the temple and having the temple worship, uh, the promises, uh, the, the prophetic promises about the coming Messiah, that God would provide a, a Messiah from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The patriarchs, they had the, the privilege of having Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were um, a blessing to the nations. And through their, their lineage came the Israelites and King David. And then ultimately, Paul says, the human ancestry of Christ came through the lineage of the patriarchs down through David. And so these are wonderful privileges for Israel. These are awesome privileges. These are the very oracles of God that he refers back to in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 2, Paul has already mentioned this. He says in chapter 3, Verse 2, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with all of these wonderful promises. And so you may begin to ask, well, okay, well, if they have all these promises and they have all these glorious blessings, then should not it automatically follow that every single ethnic Jew would accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah? And obviously that's not happening because Paul is grieved over it. Paul is grieved that individual Ethnic Jews are being cut off and accursed from Christ. And so the Jews in, in the church and those around are probably thinking to themselves, well, then what's the point of all of these oracles of God? What's the point of all these promises? God must have failed us. And so here's the issue. Paul's going to answer that question. And here's the simple answer. And Paul, here's the simple answer. Then Paul unpacks it for the rest of the chapter. Here's Paul's answer to that. It was not ever God's intention from the very beginning, even before the foundation of the world, to save every individual Israelite, but to show sovereign grace to some individuals. God's word's not failed. God hasn't failed. God is not a God who went back on his word. You just need to understand, Paul says, what God's intention was from the very beginning. And I would submit to you that Paul is not going to share with us anything that hasn't already been shared in the Old Testament. You could possibly say, even without Romans 9, you could go back and read Genesis, the account of Jacob and Esau. You could read about Exodus. You could read passages in Isaiah. And you could, just with the Old Testament, come to the conclusion that God has the sovereign right to choose some and to pass over others. But because this is the full canon of Scripture and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's going to flesh this out in the teaching here in Romans 9 and answer the objection, has God's word failed? His answer, absolutely not. You've got to understand what God's purpose is. If you get the purpose wrong, if you automatically think in your mind that God must save every single ethnic Jew, then yes, maybe you would think that God's words fail because obviously we're not seeing ethnic Jews getting saved. They're actually, they're actually being cut off in a curse. They're, they're going to hell. They're not trusting Christ. So what is God's purpose? You've got to understand that, that, that Paul is going to address the issue, has God's word failed? Now, there's a huge debate in this passage of scripture because there are some and i think there, that Leighton flowers would hold this view and i'm pretty sure he does hold this view because we talked about it that look at this as corporate or national election that what paul's talking about is he's talking about nations here this has nothing whatsoever to do with individual election individual predestination individual salvation it's dealing with nations 
And what Leighton Flowers would say is he would say, yes, it still deals with individual election because God individually elected Jacob and Jacob's offspring to be the ones to carry the gospel, the message to the entire world so that through faith, people would have the opportunity to come to Christ. That's what he calls the noble cause. And so I interacted with Leighton before I did this podcast. And I said, would you please explain to me the noble cause? Because that seemed to be uh, some confusion between him and Dr. White. And not necessarily confusion, but I wanted to know from Leighton, where do you get the noble cause? What is the noble cause? And basically what Leighton says is that back in Romans 3, 2, when the, the Israelites were entrusted with the very oracles of God, and then these seven promises that I just talked about, Leighton's view is that God individually chose Jacob to be the one to carry forward the message of the gospel and to bring forth the Messiah so that, that the entire world would have the opportunity to hear the gospel and use their free will to respond in faith. And thereby, Esau wasn't chosen to do that. He would say this has nothing to do with individual salvation. It wasn't as if Jacob was individually chosen for salvation and Esau was uh, passed over for salvation. It was just that Jacob was chosen to carry the noble cause forward and Esau was not. So it has nothing to do with individual salvation. So that's the corporate view that some people would hold to. Now, I, I totally reject that view. And I don't think that, that, that the text on its, on its merit, just face value, is going to allow that interpretation. Now, there's another way that people deal with this passage of Scripture. You've got the traditional Arminian view. And I don't really know how Arminians deal with this passage of Scripture, but basically, uh, they, because I don't think they can honestly deal with it, but basically what an Arminian would say is that this is all based upon conditional election, the foreseen faith view. It's the whole idea that God looks down through the corridors of time and God sees what's going to happen. God sees what Jacob's going to do. God sees what Esau is going to do. God sees what Pharaoh's going to do. God looks down and based upon what he sees, if he sees faith, if he sees repentance, then based upon what God foresees, then he ratifies that or he puts a stamp of approval on what he sees and then he elects based upon what he sees. So it's a, con- it's, it's a conditional election. Conditions have to be met for God to be able to see repentance and faith and then based upon what God sees, he then elects. And I think Paul blows that argument totally out of the water. So you've got three choices of how you're going to look at this text. And you can come with baggage to all of this and say, well, I'm going to automatically go with the Calvinistic view. I'm going to automatically go with the Arminian view, or I'm going to automatically go with the corporate election view. And I would say one of the things that you need to do when you come to Bible study, when you come to scripture, when you come to exegesis, is to, to the best of your ability under the power of the Holy Spirit, is to put your prejudices aside and deal with the text on its own merit and determine what the text is saying. And then as you determine what the text means, then after you've done the hard work of study, then you can say, okay, based upon what I understand, this is the camp that I think best has articulated the view I think think this is. And so I'm coming to this not because I'm a Calvinist imposing my Calvinism on this text. I would say that take Calvinism out of it and just look at the text and let's see what it teaches. And that's what we're going to do as we do an exegesis. But before we get to Jacob and Esau, Paul brings up the issue of Isaac and Ishmael. And and you have to think about, Isaac was the son of the promise. And so what Paul begins to do before he begins with Jacob and Esau is he deals with Isaac and Ishmael. 
He starts there in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Did not he already establish that back in Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29? It's not that you're a Jew inwardly or, or you're a Jew outwardly. You've got to be a Jew inwardly. Basically, he's saying just because you have these oracles of God, just because you have these promises, just because you're an ethnic Jew does not mean that you're part of the true Israel. Not all children of Abraham because there is offspring. Okay, Ishmael was an offspring of Abraham, but he was not the son of the promise. Yes, he was a physical descendant of Abraham, but he was not the son of the promise. Isaac was the son of the promise. Now, it's very easy to look at the situation with Ishmael and Isaac, and you can, you can see the, the contrast between the two. Okay, do you remember the story? They're, they're childless, and Sarah's getting a little impatient, and so she wants to try to move things along, and so she has this cockamamie idea to bring in um, Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl, and let um, Abraham go into her in, in this big debacle, and she, basically she ends up conceiving Ishmael, and it causes friction in the family, and eventually Ishmael and her have to be banished, and, and then God makes this prophecy about Ishmael, how he's going to be a wild donkey of a man, and that he's always going to be at war with his brother. And then um, all that was was done after Isaac was born. And Isaac was the son of the promise. And so, you know, you could look at that and say, well, obviously, it's very obvious. And I think Paul's setting up a situation here. It's very obvious to see why Isaac was chosen and why Ishmael was not. Obviously, Isaac had the same parents, Sarah and Abraham. He was pure Hebrew. Obviously, it was prophesied that he would be the son of the, pro- pro- the promise. It's easy to see why Ishmael's not. Obviously, two things going against him. Number one, his, his heredity, his ancestry, his, his lineage. He's got, a, he's got a, a, an Egyptian mother, so he's not pure Hebrew. He's got an Egyptian mother. And number two, the reason God rejected him was because of his character. He was a wild donkey of a man. He was always at odds with people, and so... The reason that Isaac was chosen versus the reason Ishmael was chosen was because of ancestry as opposed to lineage, as opposed to character. It's easy to see. And I think Paul sets that up to say, now, wait a minute. Just when you thought that that would be the basis for God's election, based upon works, based upon ethnicity, based upon some condition, he's going to bring in the illustration of Jacob and Esau. And it's totally different. Jacob and Esau are totally different than Isaac and Ishmael. Think about it. Jacob and Esau came from the same parents. Notice what it says there in verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, one man, they have the same parents, both Hebrew. So it's not as if one of them had a different mom or a different dad, and so it's a lineage issue. And Paul goes on further to say it's not about their character either. It wasn't that there was just going to be this prophecy that they were going to be a wild donkey of a man. Notice what Paul says. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. So God makes his election, God makes his choice before the two were even born independent upon their action. So this is not foreseen faith. This is not God looking down to the corridors of time and seeing that somehow Esau would be worse than Jacob, and therefore, because of that, God made the choice. As a matter of fact, if you go back and read the Genesis account, it's amazing that God would choose Jacob. I mean, because more space is given to Jacob, and he's a shyster. 
He's a trickster. He's a heel-grabbing uh, deceiver. And you kind of get frustrated when you read that until later on in the book of Genesis when he finally um, realizes the, the power of God and, and, and has a true encounter with the living God. It's amazing that God would choose him over Esau. It's amazing that God would choose either one of them. But the point is, what is Paul saying? This election was done before they were born. So it was done in eternity past. We know from Ephesians chapter 1 that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. And it was before they had done good or bad. And then Paul gives the purpose. What's the purpose? Why did God do this? Well, you see the purpose clause there. In order that God's purpose, it's very stated very explicitly, God's purpose of election might continue. Or, or some translations say might stand. Not, be, not because of works, but because of his call. Okay, so Paul's very explicit here. God has a purpose in doing this. What's his purpose? His purpose is election. And what's this election based upon? It has nothing to do with works. It's solely based upon his call, his call, his mercy. Now, before we answer the question, is this about individual election of certain individuals to salvation? Jacob was chosen for salvation. Esau was passed over. Esau was hated. Or is Paul talking about nations? Well, let's just look at this logically. What was the main issue that Paul raised back up in chapters one through, or verses 1 through 5? Paul's grieving. Paul's sad. Why is Paul sad? He's sad. He's grieving because individuals, individual ethnic Jews, we're being accursed and cut off and not being saved. Paul's not grief-stricken. Paul's not wanting to somehow hypothetically give up his salvation as if he really could because somehow corporate Israel had somehow forfeited their privileges of taking the gospel to the nations. Paul wasn't grieved that they weren't extending the noble cause of going to the nations and somehow they were failing in that. That's not what moves Paul to sadness. It's not that, the, that they had failed in their corporate election to do what God had called them to do. Paul is grieved because they're lost. They're, they're salvifically lost individually. Many individuals who are ethnic Jews are going to hell because of their unbelief in Christ. And what was Paul's answer to his own question? Has the word of God failed? No, absolutely not. What was Paul's answer? Here's Paul's answer. It was never God's intention to save every single ethnic Israelite. God can still be just. God's word doesn't fail. God is still holy. He can still be trusted. He can still be true to his covenant promises because you have to understand his purpose. What was his purpose? His purpose in election was that he was choosing certain individuals for salvation while passing over others, leaving them in their sin. And many people struggle with this passage of Scripture where it says there in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a quote from Malachi chapter 1. And many people bristle at this. Now, whoa, wait a minute. God actually hates someone? Well, maybe that means God loves less. He just loves, he loves Esau less than Jacob. But if you're going to go that way, God's still making a distinction. He's still making a qualification. He's loving Jacob more. There's a degree of God's love more for Jacob than there is for Esau. So what in the world does it mean that Esau he hated? Does God actually hate? Does God actually hate? Well, let's talk about the doctrine of reprobation. This is a doctrine a lot of people don't like to talk about. 
It's controversial, but you've got here God's choosing of one individual for salvation over another individual for salvation. I do not believe it's talking about nations here. And we'll get to that as we go further through this. I don't think that Paul's grieving that the nation Jacob is not fulfilling their noble cause of going to the nations with the gospel. I think Paul's grieved because individual ethnic Jews are lost and going to hell. Individuals. Not corporately lost and going to hell. Individuals within ethnic Israel are lost and going to hell. And it's grieving him. And so he's going to teach the doctrine of reprobation here. And basically what reprobation means is that God simply, in his sovereignty, passes over or chooses not to elect or predestine some and leave them in their state of sin to experience eternal condemnation. And so you've got to ask the question, is this concept even taught in the scriptures? Do we have any scriptures that corroborate that God actually either predestined someone to, to, to be passed over or that God um, made, it, made a decree that some would not be saved? Well, let me just give you one verse and let you deal with it. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Okay, you could stop right there and say, okay, God made everything for its purpose. That's, that's a great you know, passage of scripture on the sovereignty of God. Everything has a purpose. But what's the rest of the verse? Even the wicked for the day of trouble. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. So God has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked. So there are purposes of God to pass over some and leave those who are wicked in their state of sin to, to, to suffer the just consequences of that sin. We also talk about Judas. In John 13, 18, Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you, I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Some people will say, well, did, did Judas not have a choice? Did, could, could Judas ever back out? Could Judas at some point say, you know what? I, I, I've got sin in my heart. I'm going too far here. I'm not going to betray Jesus. I don't think so because it says the scripture will be fulfilled. Now, some people may say, well, that's generic. The scripture would be fulfilled. It doesn't say exactly who it was that was going to do it. Uh, but Jesus knew who it was. Jesus knew what the scripture said. He knew it was Judas. As a matter of fact, in John 17, 12, when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Again, twice Jesus appeals to the scriptures. And one thing you need to know, Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus had the highest view of the authority of scripture. And he knew that if God had preordained, according to the scriptures, that Judas was going to be the son of destruction, how would you like that to be your name? Son of destruction. God had ordained from the very beginning, according to the scriptures, and Jesus knew who it was, that there would be a son of destruction, Judas. Now, Peter and Jude also seem to, build, to, to deal with this, especially when it comes to false teachers, when it comes to false prophets. In 1 Peter 2, 7-8, Peter's talking to believers. He says, So for the honors for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What were they destined to do? disobey. What does that mean? They were destined to do this. Does this mean that, that, that God had a prefixed plan before the foundation of the world that some 
would actually not come to Christ? It was predestined? Yes. Listen to what Jude says in Jude 1.4. For certain people, this is he's talking about false teachers, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says, listen, this was designated long ago. This was designated, this was predestined, this was preordained before the foundation of the world that there would be condemnation for ungodly people. So you've got to grapple with some words here that God hated Esau and God hardened Pharaoh. But you have to remember, if you go back to Exodus, Pharaoh did not harden his heart first. In Exodus 4.21 and in Exodus 7.3, we find out that God was the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart first. It wasn't as if Pharaoh was kind of following his own course of action and he decided to harden his heart and God responded to that. No, God determined to harden Pharaoh's heart first and Pharaoh was only doing what God had decreed would happen. Now let's discuss the issue of equal ultimacy because equal ultimacy is an issue that needs to be rejected and some people take an extreme view of double predestination. And here's what they would say. Well, are you telling me that God chooses some for salvation and works grace and faith and irresistibly draws them and does all these things for saved people. But for lost people, he actually does the same thing. He works in them unbelief and he, he causes them to actually disbelieve and he, and he reprobates them by working to harden them. And I would say, no, that's equal ultimacy. L- let me give you some, some, some distinctions here that we need to talk about. First, let's, let's establish this. And Paul has already established this in Romans chapter 3. He's established it in Romans chapter 5. All humans are born under condemnation and deserve God's wrath. Every single person deserves God's wrath because we're all fallen in Adam. Paul's established that already. But what God does, and Paul's established this, and especially in Romans chapter 8, God works specially. God works supernaturally. God works irresistibly in the lives of his elect. Those whom he's predestined before the foundation of the world, God works powerfully to overcome that sin. What is it, how does he do that? Well, he effectually calls them through the internal working of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates them. He, he brings about the new birth. He grants them the gifts of faith and repentance. God does a monergistic work of salvation to overcome that deadness in his elect. Does God do the same active working in the lives of those he doesn't choose? No. God does not do a special work in the lives of the reprobate. What does he do? He simply passes them over. He leaves them in their sin. He withholds his mercy. So God does not actively work in the reprobate to make them somehow more sinful, to make them more hardened. What does he do? He simply allows them to remain in their state of depravity. They're already under the curse in Adam. They're already dead in sin. He doesn't need to create unbelief in their hearts. They're already dead in sin. They already have unbelief. God just leaves them in that state and passes them over. Now, some of people will object and say, wow, I am majorly struggling with this because this makes it sound like God's arbitrary, God's capricious, God's willy-nilly. He's just sending some people to hell and he's saving some people to heaven. And it's just this whole issue of us being unfair. God's being unfair. It's a monstrous idea. 
I, I would never worship a God like this. It's unfair. It's arbitrary. It makes God a respecter of persons. It makes God random. I don't like it. Now, if there was ever a place in Scripture where Paul would stop and back up and say, now, wait a minute, let me, let me give you some more clarification. This, this is not what it means. It doesn't mean that God chooses some and passes over others. It doesn't mean that, that hey, you know, we talk about God's sovereignty, but yeah, it's really human choice that, that trumps God's sovereignty. Uh, let, let, me, let me back up and explain what I didn't mean here. If there was any place in Scripture where you could have a soft peddling on the doctrine of God's sovereign right to choose some and pass over others, it would be right here. But what does Paul do? Paul is going to actually address the issue head on. Like I said earlier, this is a masterful, almost like a legal document. Paul's setting forth case after case, argumentation after argumentation, and he's, he's expecting the objections to come from the other side. And so in a preemptive strike, he's going to address these head on because he knows what's coming. He knows what he's just said is going to make people offended. He knows what he just said. People are going to say, stand up and say, Paul, wait a minute. That's unfair. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't sit right with me, Paul. I, I think that's arbitrary. That's capricious. That's, that's not fair, Paul. And notice what Paul does. Paul ad- addresses that. Paul does a preemptive strike. He, he knows it's coming. Look what he does in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He answers it. I know what you're going to say. I know exactly what you're going to say, Paul says. You're going to say, this is not fair. This is not just. And Paul says, absolutely not. By no means. And then what does he do? He quotes the Old Testament. He goes back to Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. In Exodus 33, 19, we need to understand the context. Uh, in Exodus 30, 19, God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Paul quotes that verbatim there. Now we have to understand the Old Testament context. This is where uh, Moses, uh, this is after the golden calf and God has been angry with the people and Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and, and God you know, tells Moses, you need to get up and get going and get moving. And Moses says, I, I don't want to go unless your presence is with us. And, and Moses really desires to see the full glory of God. And God says, Moses, you can't see my full glory. If you see my full glory, you will incinerate. You will die. No one can see the full glory of the Lord and live. But what I'll do is I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by you and you will be able to see my backside glory. That's all you're going to get. And when God does that, he's making the statement that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. God is doing this as a display of his glory, of his glory. So we've, we've got we've to stop right there. Many people don't understand this, and, and they, get, they get a little bit angry at us as Calvinists when we say, God does this electing work for His glory alone. And, and you say, well, where do we get that? Is that just a Calvinistic thing? That, you know, is that a John Piper thing? No, it's a Bible thing. Paul is quoting the Old Testament passage where God is displaying His full glory, and in that display of glory, God's making this pronouncement, I have the sovereign right to show mercy on whom I want to show mercy, and I have the sovereign right to show grace upon whom I want to show grace. And the, 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 the verbs that 
Paul uses when he quotes that. Literally, I will mercy, aleo in the Greek, and I will compassion, oikitro. It's, it's, you know, it's translated in our translations, have mercy, but really it's an active, it's an active verb. I'm going to mercy who I have the sovereign right to mercy, and I'm going to compassion who I have the right to compassion. And then the counter argument that you're going to have people say is, well, isn't God obligated to save everyone? Sure, you know, we're not denying God's sovereign. We're not denying God has right. We're not denying that God has power. We're not denying God's omnipotent. Obviously, if he, if he wants to show compassion, he can. If he wants to show mercy, he can. But that's not the issue. The issue is, is God obligated to show it to everyone? And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the word mercy and grace. If God is obligated to do something, it ceases to be a gift of grace. It becomes something that is earned or merited or deserved or forced upon God. Mercy and grace, by their very definition, are things that are God's not obligated to give. Uh, my, my friend Artazertia, who, who's a pastor of Trinity Church in Portland, who's come and preached at our church, and I've, I've done some things with him over the years, um, he basically, and I love the way he says this, he says a lot of times as Christians we use the word undeserving. We're undeserving sinners. He says that's not true. Because undeserving makes it sound like you don't deserve anything. He says, I know what people mean when they say undeserving. We don't deserve God's love. We're undeserving. But he says, really, we should change our vocabulary. We should change the term to ill-deserving or hell-deserving because we deserve something. We do. We're not undeserving. We're hell-deserving. What what do we deserve? We deserve wrath. We deserve hell. So God is not obligated to give that mercy to anybody. He has the sovereign right to withhold it. He has the sovereign right to give it. And here's the issue. If God were to only give mercy to one person on planet Earth, it would be an amazing act of mercy. And he would not be unjust. But he gives it to many. Another thing that people will label against Calvinists, they'll say, you guys just believe that God has chosen a small few. There's this small few, this chosen frozen, this this small few. And, And I don't know where they get that biblically. No Calvinist I know believes that it's a small few. I let the Bible speak where it speaks. What was the promise that God gave to Abraham? Your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And you go to Revelation chapter 7 where John gets to see the great multitude before the throne and it says it was a number that no man can count. So the Bible to me says that the elect are a great number that no man can count. Now it's a fixed number. I believe that God fixed that individual number of, of, of elect people before the foundation of the world, but it's not a chosen few. And God is not obligated to give it to anybody. Look at verse 16. Notice what Paul does here. He gives the, um, the foundation or the basis for God's election, or not the basis. So my translation, the ESV says, says so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So we have to ask the question, what's the it? What's the it? There has to be an antecedent or something back earlier in the passage that qualifies what the it is. And if you trace it contextually and grammatically, the it goes back to verse 11, God's purpose of election. So then it, what is it? God's purpose of election depends not. What does it not depend on? What's not the foundation? Why does God not elect? Well, on human will or exertion. 
Then what is the basis? Paul finishes the rest of the verse. But on God who has mercy. God says there's two things that it's not dependent upon. And this really blows away the Arminian view of foreseen faith. Paul says it's not based upon human will. Willing. It's not based upon a human choice, a human will. You know, it's not that God looked down to the corridors of time and he saw who would trust him by using their free will. And once the person used their free will, God saw that and then God chose them. Paul blows out of the water here and says that's not God's basis of election. You, you can't. You can't have conditional, foreseen faith, Arminian election in this passage of Scripture. Paul says emphatically that's not the basis of God's electing work. It's not based upon human will or exertion. Some translations say running. It's not based upon willing or running. Now, let me give you an analogy of faith here or where Scripture corroborates Scripture. What does the Apostle John say at the beginning of his, of his gospel? John 1, 12-13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Many people like to talk about the first half of that verse, verse 12. Oh, yeah, you've got to believe in his name. You've got to receive him. And when you believe in him and you receive him, you become a child of God. I absolutely believe that. When you believe in Jesus when you come to him, when you receive him, you become a child of God. That's not the issue. The issue is, why did you believe? Why did you believe and how did you believe? What was the foundation for your believing? Why did you believe? Well, let's let John answer the question at the end of the verse. Who were born? Now, he's talking about supernatural birth. If you look at the whole issue of born again in John's gospel, he's talking about spiritual birth. And he says, what were you not born of? How, how did you become a Christian? How did you receive him? You were supernaturally born, not of blood, ancestry, human birth, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. But it was God. Sounds eerily familiar to Paul. God has chosen his elect individuals, not based upon their willing, not based upon their choosing, not based upon their working, but simply upon his mercy. And John would say the same thing. People who are saved get saved because they were born of God. God, monergistically from first to last, is the one who brought them to faith. Now, Paul's going to take it one step further. If you're not mad enough at Paul now, you should be mad at him even more now. He's going to take it one step further. In verse 17, what Paul's going to do is he's going to give an illustration from, from Pharaoh, talking about Pharaoh. And what Paul does here is he quotes from Exodus 9.16 verbatim. Exodus 9.16 says, For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so there in Romans 9, verse 17, Paul quotes that verbatim. And so he brings up this issue of Pharaoh, verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so you've got this issue of the hardening of Pharaoh. And let's just stop and talk about Pharaoh for a moment. If this were corporate election, would not God or would not Paul be talking about the nation of Egypt? 
Now, obviously, some people may say, well, when, when, when God, Paul here is talking about Pharaoh, Pharaoh was the leader of Egypt, and so by extension, it's corporately the nation of Egypt that he's talking about. But that doesn't work here contextually because Pharaoh is an individual whom God hardened, whom God raised up. God did not harden the nation of Egypt. God did not raise up the nation of Egypt. He specifically hardened Pharaoh and raised him up. And so you've got from scripture, three individuals who we could possibly consider reprobate. Pharaoh, whom God hardened, Esau, whom God hated, and Judas, who it was the son of perdition that was prescribed or or ordained or predicted by the scriptures. Now, if you remember, Paul had that objection that he answered back in verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? And so now there's going to be another objection that he's going to raise that he's going to do another preemptive strike here. And so this is in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Here's the other objection. If you weren't strong enough with the fact that God has the sovereign right to show compassion on whom he wants to show compassion, he has the sovereign right to show mercy upon whom he wants to show mercy. He, he told this to Moses back in Exodus 33. He gives the illustration of Pharaoh. And so somebody may still be struggling and say, okay, well, I've got a major issue with you, Paul. Not only is this not fair, not only is this unjust, but I've got another objection. I've got another problem. How can sinners then be held accountable if it's already been predetermined by God? If I have no choice in the matter, then, then therefore, why should I be held accountable? Now, I refer you to go back to a previous podcast that I did on Are There Two Wills in God? And you can hear from that that God oftentimes ordains the very things He hates in order to bring about the things that He loves. And I talked about Joseph in Genesis 50. I talked about the cross in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. I talked about the Assyrians in Isaiah chapter 10 and other places. And so uh, you, you, you can go back and listen to that podcast. But here's the ob- objection. That doesn't make sense, Paul, because if God is doing this and it's all been predetermined, then then how can he hold us accountable for something that he predetermined? And what's Paul's answer? You may not like Paul's answer, but here's his answer. He says in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He basically gives a rebuke there. He says, You have no right to talk back to God. You may not like it. You may not fully understand it. You may um, have major problems with it, but you as the, the creation have no right to question God. You have no right to tell God what to do. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to give an illustration here. And this is not a new illustration. He's going to talk about potter and clay. If you go back to um, Isaiah and Jeremiah, the two major prophets there, they often gave the analogy of God being like a sovereign potter and the nation of Israel being like clay. As a matter of fact, Isaiah twenty nine sixteen, it says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me? Or the thing formed say of Him who formed it, He has no understanding? So Paul is going to bring this Old Testament analogy, this Old Testament metaphor of pottery and clay. 
Verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In other words, as the creation, we have no right to question God. We have no right to tell God how to order his universe. We have no right to tell God how he's going to do individual election. We have no right at all because we are simply his creation. He's the sovereign. He's the potter. We are the clay. And then Paul's going to say some words that really, really make people upset. He's going to continue the argumentation about God's individual sovereign right to choose. Verse 21. Has the potter no right? There's a word, key word there, no right. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now notice what Paul says here, first of all, he says the potter has rights. He has the right over the clay to make out of the same lump, the same lump. That's very important. Paul does not say there's two different lumps here. If there were two different lumps, then there may be two different distinctions or two different reasons why God would elect. Maybe there's one lump that was better ethnically, one lump that was more spiritually sensitive, one lump that had better ancestry or family upbringing. But, but there's no distinction in the lump. It's one lump. It's the lump of humanity. And it ties back to what Paul had said earlier about one man, that Jacob and Esau came from one man. And out of that one man, God made a distinction between two specific individuals. And it was not based upon works. It was not based upon anything because God did it before they were born. And here's the same analogy here. God takes one clump, one lump of clay, the, 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 the sinful mass of humanity out of that one lump. And he has the sovereign right to do out of that one lump two different things. One can be vessels of honor. Others, vessels for dishonor. So... There are those that are prepared for destruction to be objects of his wrath. And there are vessels that were prepared hand beforehand for glory. Now, let me just ask you a question. Does this address corporate election? Is the nation of Israel a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy? Or is he talking here about individuals? How can a nation be a vessel now, some may say, well, they're the vessel that goes to carry the noble cause of advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Again, they would say this is not talking about individual election. This is talking about corporate election. But why is he talking about salvific issues here? Talking about vessels prepared for destruction, vessels prepared for mercy. And notice how God says it was prepared beforehand. It was prepared beforehand. In other words, God's sovereign choice was made beforehand. Well, when was that made? Well, we can go look at Ephesians chapter 1 and find out that it, that choice was made before the foundation of the earth. In the case of Jacob and Esau, it was before they had done anything good or bad. So God has created individuals who will be destined to eternal wrath and hell. And God has chosen individuals out of that same mass of fallen humanity to be recipients of mercy. And I want you to notice that both of this bring glory to 
God. This is a hard pill for some to swallow, that God even gets the glory in the demonstration of His wrath. And some people may bristle at that. You, you may have never even heard of that. You would think, well, that, that doesn't bring God glory to have vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That, it doesn't bring God glory for people to go to hell. We have a faulty view of God's justice if we think that, that way. God is glorious in all of His attributes. So when God chooses to express His wrath, it's an act of His holiness and His glory. When God chooses to express His mercy, it's an act of glory and holiness. Now, just to bring this to a close and talk about whether it's corporate election or it's individual election, notice what Paul does. He rounds it out in verse 24. He's been using this argumentation all along about individuals. Pharaoh was an individual. Esau was an individual. Jacob was an individual. God has mercy on whom he wills mercy. He has, he, he has compassion on whom he will compassion. He hardens who he wants to harden. Vessels of mercy, vessels of wrath. And then in verse 24, even us... Paul's talking about those who've been prepared beforehand for glory, even us, believers, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is individual election. Not not just Jews, but Gentiles, not nations here, but individuals, those whom he has called, Jews also and Gentiles. So again, verse 24 really speaks to individual election. Let's go back to Paul's original argument. What's what's the whole purpose that Paul is writing this? He's defending the fact that some people were thinking that God's word must have failed. God can't be trustworthy. God has somehow messed up on his promises because basically we're seeing ethnic Jews rejecting Christ and therefore all these promises that God made to Old Testament Israel, to the ethnic Jews, have not come true and therefore God's word has failed. And Paul says, absolutely not. And the reason why is because it was never God's intention from the beginning to save every single person, every single ethnic Jew. God has a choice of certain individuals to salvation and others he leaves to his wrath. Now let's just stop and talk about the implications of this passage of Scripture. And I think there are some very strong implications and applications. One of the arguments that people will level against Calvinists or those who hold to the doctrines of grace, and I hear things like this, well, you guys don't believe in evangelism, or why, why would you guys go out and share the gospel if it's already fixed? If God's got it all figured out and everything's already figured out and, he, and, and people are elect and they have no choice in the matter, then why pray for lost people? Why do evangelism? Why even bother? Why do missions? Because it's like a rigged television show and it's all figured out. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that people come to Christ no matter what. As a matter of fact, we've got the Great Commission that tells us to go make disciples, but God also uses means to bring about his redemptive purposes. Let's just talk about Paul for a moment. Paul is grieved. Paul is saddened. And what does Paul do? 
Does Paul just, is Paul fatalistic and say, well, you know, I've got all this doctrine about predestination. If there's anybody that knows about predestination, it's me. I've got it down pat. Wrote the book on it. Wrote Romans, wrote Ephesians, wrote all these books about it. I got it down. Let me just sit back and cruise. If God's got it all figured out, then let him just work it out. And, and I really don't have to do anything because after all, if he's going to save people, he's going to do it without me. Is that Paul? What is Ephesians 6, 18 through 20? Paul says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Paul says, Ephesian church, pray for me. And what does he ask them to pray for? Verse 19, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What does Paul pray for? He says, Ephesians church, I need you to pray for me that that I would have boldness. That when I open my mouth, I would boldly and clearly present the gospel. I, I want you to, and so Paul's praying for opportunities to share the gospel. Paul's praying for boldness. Paul doesn't sit back and say, well, if God's going to save him, I don't need to be bold. I don't need to share. I don't need you to be praying for me because God's just going to zap him anyway. God's going to zap him no matter what. I hear people say that a lot. God's just going to zap people without their knowledge and and bring them kicking and screaming to heaven so we don't really need to to pray for lost people. I don't know of any Calvinist or Reformed person that, that believes that. And what about Paul's work ethic? What about Paul's zeal for church planning? What, Paul went and did church planning in Corinth and Ephesus and Galatia and Philippi and Thessalonica and, and he got beaten and he got imprisoned and he got shipwrecked and he got kicked out of synagogues and he got stoned, almost left for dead. He was, he was beaten. Why did Paul do that? Did he, did he do that just in vain? Listen to 1 Corinthians fifteen ten. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. Paul says, listen, he's, he's, he's contradicting or he's countermanding these super apostles who said that Paul wasn't anything worthy uh, to be talked about or his ministry was worth nothing. And Paul says, listen, if there's anybody that's worked hard, if there's anybody that's gone to, um, you know, gone out into the, into the highways and the hedges, if there's anybody that's gone to the ends of the earth to try to reach the lost, it's me. I worked harder than anybody by God's grace. Paul wasn't passive. Paul didn't have this fatalistic attitude. Well, if God's going to save him, God's going to save him. No, Paul's heart broke. Paul was effective in evangelism. Paul was earnest. Paul was active As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy 2.10, he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure everything. What are those things that he endured? Again, shipwreck, being bitten by a snake, beatings, imprisonment, flogging, stoning, left for dead, being kicked out of synagogues, being name called, all the things. What does he endure? He endures for the sake of the elect. Now, you may say, well, he did that for people that he knew were already saved, the elect. Yes, but I think he also did that for those he knew would be saved who were among the elect that had not been saved yet. You see, the issue is we don't know the identity of the elect. We don't know who they are. It's like Charles Spurgeon said, man, if, if, if I were to go through the streets of London and pull up people's shirt tails and there was a white stripes you know, painted on the back of all of the God's elect, I would just go target them and do my evangelism to them. It would be so much easier. The point is, we don't know the identity of the elect. 
God's not given that, given that to us. And so every single person we are to share the gospel with. And only God has determined who's going to be saved. And the means he uses to call out his elect is by our evangelism, our praying, our going, our disciple making, our church planning, our missionary trips, our missions, our evangelism. And Paul says, I endure all this stuff for the sake of the elect. We don't know who the elect are, so we pray for boldness. We pray for lost people. We pray for opportunities for evangelism. We pray that we would open our mouth. We, we go, we share, we invest, we do church planning, we do missions. And I would say this, reformed people should be the most evangelistic, the most missions-minded people there are. Because we're like Paul, we have this heart-burning desire to see people come to faith in Christ. And it burdens us. It saddens us when we see people rejecting Jesus. We are heartbroken over the reality that people are going to hell. It does not give us joy to know that people are going to hell. We are heartbroken like Paul. But in the same breath, we also know that God is sovereign. And then he has chosen certain individuals for salvation and others he's passed by. And it's not our job to go figure that out. It's our job to go and plead with sinners to be reconciled to God and leave the results up to him. This doctrine in chapter 9 should move us to tears, should move us to our knees in awe in light of God's wrath and His mercy to show that we are totally and absolutely dependent upon Him for salvation. And we can never, ever appeal to any merit in us, anything in us at all, as God's basis for choosing us or saving us. The election that God shows is unconditional. God does it because He has the right to do it. There's nothing in us that moves Him to do it. There's nothing in us that motivates Him to do it. There is nothing at all that we can do to move or earn or obligate or indebt God to do what He does. That's Paul's whole argument. God has the sovereign right to show mercy on whom He shows mercy. And so we need to bow to this. Again, you may not like it. You may be like one of the objectors. And say, that's not fair. Why is God holding me accountable? I don't like it. But at the end of the day, if you're saved, if you're saved, you've got to bow in humility that God would dare choose to save you. Again, Spurgeon was overwhelmed. Charles Spurgeon was overwhelmed that he was saved, that God elected him. And, and I'm kind of paraphrasing him, but he said, I'm sure glad God chose me before the foundation of the world because I know he would never choose me afterwards, after I was born. Because I've committed way too many sins. You know, Paul goes on and, and gives some more teaching in chapter 10 and 11 about the nation of Israel and how that's all going to work out. But then at the, at the end of chapter 11, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think just stops in his tracks. He's been talking about the glories of God's salvation, the glories of God's mercy, all of these huge theological issues. And I think he just stops dead in his tracks and bursts with this, great doxology he says there in chapter 11 verse 33 oh the depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge of god now we need to pay attention to that word oh paul could have just said the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god but he has that oh it's that i'm overwhelmed i'm blown away this is moving me to my knees i've got to stop and say oh oh the depth 
of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. I can't even begin to understand God. I can't even begin to understand his judgment, his ways. He is awesome. He is too powerful. His ways are higher than my ways. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around this sovereign, wonderful God. And then verse verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Rhetorical question, nobody. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who who knows God's thoughts? Who can climb up into heaven and get into into the inner workings of of the triune God and understand his sovereign, eternal mind? Nobody. Who has been his counselor? Who's been God's guidance counselor? Hey, God, this is how you should do things. Let me give you some advice, God. Let me give you some encouragement. Let let me give you some help on how you should run things. Sadly, there's a televangelist that I heard one time that actually did that. Supposedly, God came to him in some type of vision or something and asked his advice on how he was supposed to do something. And so you have the sovereign God of the universe coming and asking advice from a human on how he's supposed to do something. That's that's blasphemous. Paul says here, nobody, nobody's been God's counselor. Verse 35, who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? It's the height of arrogance to say, hey, God, let me repay you. God, let me give you something. You're you're needy, God. God, you must have needs. It's, It's like David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, where David says, hey, God, you must have a need. You know, I'm living in this beautiful palace and you don't have a house. So I, as a human being, I'm going to create for you. I'm going to build for you a house. God, you must have needs. There must be something I, as a human, can somehow do to fulfill a need in you. And Paul says, God has no needs. In Acts chapter 17, when he's on Mars Hill, or maybe it's Acts chapter 19, but either way, when he's, when he's on Mars Hill where he says, God has no, as if God needs anything. God has no needs. God turns around to David and says, hey, listen, I have no needs, but you have a desperate need. You're a guilty sinner. Let me make for you a house. And God showers David with blessings beyond his wildest imagination. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, Romans chapter 9 is to lead to worship. It's to lead to adoration. It's to lead to humility. It's to lead to awe. It should lead us to tears that God would so dare choose to save me when I'm such a wretch. And like Paul, it should move us to tears to see people rejecting Christ all around us and to be fervent in evangelism and fervent in prayer. And yes, I would agree with Leighton Flowers. There's a noble cause. We do need to share the gospel. We do need to go with the gospel to the nations and share the good news of salvation. I just don't know if that's taught here in Romans chapter 9, the concept that we need to go to the nations or that Israel was to be a blessing to the nations. Yes, I I agree with that in part, but I don't know if that's the full teaching or what that's being taught here in Romans chapter 9. And so I know this podcast, this this topic has been a little difficult. Romans chapter 9. And I've tried my best to try to give you a... um, An exegesis, an exposition, I think, is faithful to the historical context, the grammatical context, the canonical, the theological context of this passage of Scripture. Now, one of the things that I would like to to close with is to say that one of the things I I don't really, I'm concerned about that I'm seeing in different podcasts that I'm hearing 
and that I'm seeing on blogs, especially among Christian brothers and sisters, there just seems to be an elevated sense of, um, I don't want to necessarily use the word nastiness, but maybe a condescending attitude where we're we're kind of condescending to people that may not share our view, where we can basically label them as, you know, they're not, they're sub-biblical or they're they're kind of idiots or or they have no clue or I, and we can set up straw men and try to blow them down. We can use ad hominem arguments against the person's character. We can be real condescending in our tone and we can be, um, you know, just very, very um, caustic. And, and, and conflicting and i'm the first to say that we need to stand up for truth we need to expose heresy we need to use godly discernment we need to make sure we have sound doctrine i am all for that i'll be the first in line to say that we need to have strong theology in a wacky world of evangelical confusion and wacky weird heretical aberrant beliefs all over the place we more than ever need to stand up for truth but we also need to do it in love, as Paul says, speak the truth in love. There's a way to defend truth, to be valiant for truth. There's a way to be exegetically sound. There's a way to defend orthodox theology in a way that's kind, in a way that's loving, firm, strong, courageous, but yet at the same time gentle. What does Peter tell us? says be ready to give an offense for the hope that's within you do this with gentleness and respect i think what i'm seeing lacking in a lot of our evangelical culture right now especially in podcasts and blogs is there's not a lot of gentleness and respect and what often happens on these podcasts is people tend to play clips from other people they disagree with and they they make fun of them they interact with them and they basically you know destroy them And yes, they may be heretical, may they be weird, or may they just be a little off, not that far. But the problem is that person's not there to defend themselves. That person's not there to bring clarification. And so it's very easy to to, to go on a podcast and interact with somebody else and, and play a clip or play a video clip and sit there and blast them. And there's a time and place for that, and certain people have different giftings to be able to do that. There's some discernment blogs and some discernment podcasts, and different people have that gifting. That's just not my cup of tea. I don't really um, enjoy, you know, interacting with other people and bringing video clips and audio clips into my my podcast. I would rather say, let's just deal with the text. I can explain the text. I can tell you what I believe the text means and let people that have a little bit different ministries interact with other people. And so I just think we need to be careful. Um, that's why I appreciate the, the conversations I have had with Leighton Flowers, the interaction we've had. It's been cordial. It's been um, edifying. I think we've been able to model how two brothers that diametrically disagree can learn to understand each other's viewpoint, and I've been able to get some clarification from him. Again, I don't. I, I, I totally am and agree that I totally believe that, that Leighton Flowers has Romans 9 wrong, and I would tell that to him. Um, to his, you know, if we were on a podcast together, I said, you know, I, I think that you that you've come to some wrong conclusions. I'm not going to say that you use faulty exegesis. I'm not going to say that he's engaged in, in some weird hermeneutic. I'm just going to say I think you've 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 come to the wrong conclusions, and, and I think I've come to the right conclusions, and I'm able to defend why, and he's able to defend why, and and Dr. James White's able to defend why he comes to those conclusions. And so I just think it's important that we talk about these issues. And at the end of the day, the real issue is they will know we are Christians by our love yes we need to have strong theology but we also need to balance that with love 
Not a mushy love. Don't hear me wrong. Not a mushy sentimentality type of love where we don't address issues and we're just kind of, uh, you know, fluffy and, and, and jellyfish, but, but a firm, doctrinally sound type of love that really engages others on the level of argumentation and not on personal attacks. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm so glad you've taken the time to listen to this podcast. If you do have any questions or comments or you want to interact, I would say even snide remarks, uh, you can find me at my personal website. It's seancole.net. All my contact information is there. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or you can email me. I'd love to hear from you so I can engage with you. Um, I'd love to encourage you, talk with you, pray with you, answer your questions. Um, Whatever type of thing you need help from, I want to be available to do that to my listeners. And so thank you for listening. May God bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity with Pastor Sean Cole.